Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline and I'm Kristen.、Uh, in the wake of the Batman shooting at the Aurora, Colorado theater、uh, last month,、um, a lot of discussion has come up about heroism and who is a hero, what makes you a hero, what makes you a coward.、Um, A lot of really personal, touching stories came out of this national tragedy. Yeah, and a lot of times in the podcast, we don't focus on very specific and timely events like this. But someone had brought this up on our Facebook page, and there was a lot of conversation, like you mentioned, Caroline, happening online about three men who were killed in the Aurora shooting:、um, John Blunk, who was 26, Alex Tevez. Who was 24, and Matt McQuinn, who was 27, and all three of these guys have something in common aside from being very young.、Um, they all essentially sacrificed their lives to save their girlfriends who were at the theaters with them. Right, and it raised a lot of debate about. Um, they're real men. Well, what is a real man? Are you only a real man if you sacrifice your life in such a situation? Does it take、uh, a tragic situation like this to make someone a hero?、Um, why didn't other people do the same things that these men did? And we will touch on the debate, but I think we should just say a little bit about these men.、Um, John Blunk was a security guard at Target. He'd served eight years in the Navy and was in the process of reenlisting, in the hopes of becoming a Navy SEAL.、Uh, not only did he leave behind the girlfriend Jansen Young, who he saved, but he also left behind an ex-wife and two children. When his girlfriend actually、uh, was trying to pull him off the floor. This this is detail that she revealed in the interviews.、Um, she actually tried to convince herself that he was wet because he'd been hit by a water balloon,、um, and she said that I think John just took a bullet for me. He provided me the opportunity to survive. Yeah, and then、um, we have Alex, the 24-year-old. He had earned a master's degree in counseling psychology, and he dove on top of his girlfriend Amanda Lindgren when the shooting started. Yeah, and then there's Matt McQuinn, who's an Ohio native, and he was sitting with girlfriend Samantha Yowler, who、uh, he saved her.、Uh, she actually was shot in the leg,、um, and I believe they were with her brother, also in the theater, who was not shot. And I think that we should, before we go any further, we should say that any conversation、um, that we have from here on out about the conversations that it's raised about heroism and masculinity. Um, is not ever meant to detract at all from what these guys did, which in all three cases that is incredibly brave. I mean, considering the circumstances, I have no idea what I would have done. Yeah.、Um, and it is very laudable. So it's a situ. The the conversation is connected to them, but not in a way、uh, judging at all what they did. Right. Exactly, because you can't really negatively judge them saving someone else's life. Precisely,、uh, one person whose column in Slate has attracted quite a bit of criticism is author Hannah Rosen, who wrote the article "The End of Men" for the Atlantic.、Uh, we've talked about her before.、Uh, Rosen pointed out that. Basically, you know, Aurora has been portrayed during this tragedy as kind of an all-American town that lost its innocence, and she's pointing out that、um, 
Maybe n- that's not quite the case because in the wake of all these recessions, a lot of towns, Aurora included, um, have seen employment de- decrease. People have really been struggling. And she says that many men in Aurora and nationally aren't working as steadily. And she points out that uh, as a security guard at Target, uh, John Blunt couldn't have been making enough to support a family. Meanwhile, his girlfriend had just earned her veterinarian degree. So she's using them as kind of an example of how, you know, things are changing in the professional world. Right. Um, she sort of sees it as a microcosm of um, the changing gender roles that have in a lot of ways been induced by the recession. Um, but at the same time, while... Um, Rosen talks about how the, the scales have tipped in terms of a lot of women, especially from lower and middle income backgrounds, are now being um, more educated than men and also are out earning men. But at the same time, even in those situations, women still and we're speaking very heteronormatively right now, uh, you know, in these um male-female relationships, where women still want to see men as protectors. And men still need to be seen as protectors, even if they might not be the breadwinners, as had been the traditional role. There's still that issue of protection. Right. And in her research for The End of Men, her project, uh, she found that there was an effort across middle class American towns to redefine the roles of men, because, like we said, things are changing a lot. Uh, she said that in many areas, they're, they're no longer the breadwinners, like Kristen said, nor are they always steady fathers, quote, because couples don't get married all that much anymore. And so she found an enduring need for men to think of themselves and women to think of them as the protectors. And she also goes on to say that this is not just a thing about chivalry. Mm-hmm. And we did a podcast a long, long time ago now um, on gender and chivalry and whether or not sh- this idea of chivalry should die. And she concludes that this goes way beyond, and I agree, this goes way beyond chivalry, the, the acts of bravery and heroism that happened at... Um, that Aurora movie theater, um, because she defines chivalry as a code of conduct connected to social propriety. That is not what throwing your body in front of someone mm-hmm. to take a bullet for them is. Yeah, she calls it an instinct that's basic and deeper. So I think she got a little bit of criticism for pointing out these these personal details about these men, and people felt that she was criticizing you know, men who were losing their position in society, but she, you know, is is not trying to say that. I think she was talking more about how even as our society evolves, changes, you know, recessions affect different towns and cities differently, we still have a common thread of, especially in a tragedy, wanting things to be comfortingly familiar and normal according to the scripts that we are familiar with. Well, and it's also reflective of this internal caricature, caricature, character trait that has still been preserved through all of this of, um, of that bravery and that extinct instinctual desire to protect. But Jessica Wakeman over at the Frisky would caution with all of this discussion of these men's heroism to not make it a 
gendered conversation to not say like, oh, what an incredible masculine act of bravery this was. Right. She asks what masculinity has to do with heroic behavior. And she says the implication in a lot of these discussions surrounding the Aurora shooting um, is that heroism is a gendered concept. She says that, you know, the knight in shining armor narrative is a feel good story. And like I just touched on, one that's familiar and comforting in the wake of a national tragedy. When we feel like we we see a story that's familiar. I mean, the men's these these individual sacrifice was incredible. And so we see that. And of course we want to report it. We want to report the good that comes out of a terrible situation like this. But it's part of it. It fits into um, ideas about our culture that we already have. Right. And it also offers us some hope that there is some good out there, that there is that basic instinct to do good, right. even though on the flip side of these stories of heroism, there have uh, there have also been at least one story that's come out of Aurora about one man who left the theater, left his girlfriend and his kid to the theater to supposedly go get help. But it's now turning out that he was fleeing because he was terrified yeah. and that I mean, let's be honest, that's also understandable in a way. Well, I mean, he, that man is being called all sorts of names all over the internet. You know, people are really criticizing him for not acting like these three men that we talked about earlier. Um, but as Wakeman says, basically, like, who are we to judge? She was also criticized for saying that. Yeah. People were like, well, you know, where is your moral base? Obviously, this guy is a coward because he didn't stick around and protect his loved ones like these other three men did. But again, like Kristen said, who knows what we would do in that situation? Right. Um, and I think that it's also worth uh, mentioning uh, a very inflammatory tweet from a Wall Street Journal Ooh, yeah. columnist saying, well, I hope those women were worth it. And it's just, I mean, I only mentioned that because it's, it is kind of fascinating to see how people are interpreting this, how mm-hmm. they're, we're so protective of these heroes, but also, you know, ready to, to tear down someone who was so terrified that he left as well. Yeah. But, you know, that's, it's not a up for debate of saying, you know, like, who's a, a better person or not. Right. I did think that tweet was, pretty ridiculous and I mean I think I'm not in the minority there to say that he he got a lot of flack online for that and ended up calling his tweet challenging yeah like he was just trying to provoke some some debate and thought right and I I I mean that could start a whole other topic about how if someone acts in a heroic manner does it matter if the recipient of that deserved it right I you know because then you have to talk about, get into the whole philosophical debate of who deserves uh, life. And my friend, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10-foot football. Exactly. Um, but going back to this idea of women and children first, which certainly ties into the gendered concept of heroism as this masculine thing. There was a study that was published this July in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, and two Swedish economists found that women and children first, not so much, at least in the case of shipwrecks. 
Yeah, they looked at survival data for some of history's worst shipwrecks dating back to the 1850s, and he, fa- he, they, the two of them, the pair, found that women and children were only half as likely as crew members and captains to survive maritime disasters. They say that there's little evidence that men were inclined to surrender their survival advantage. And so they point out some survival rates here. For the crew, 61%. Captains, 44 Male passengers, 37%, women, 27 and children, just 15 Which, I mean, of course, if you are on a ship and you have worked on a ship and you have experience with ship-related things <laughs> and know where the poop deck is and such, uh, yeah, you probably have a much better chance of survival than if... Um, you are completely unfamiliar with it. Not to say women never work on ships, but you know what I mean. Um, although the two exceptions that the Swedish economists found were the Titanic, uh, where the women's survival rate, including Kate Winslet, uh, was three times higher. Why couldn't she let him on the door? I know. Why couldn't she get him on there the door? There was enough door for Leo. That's all we're going to say. Um, but on the Titanic, the women's survival rate was three times higher than men's. Um, but that was also because the captain was insistent about getting the women and children off. And on the Birkenhead, which sank off the South African coast in 1852 and actually gave rise to this concept of women and children first. And there are a lot of arguments in, in the article we read uh, in the L.A. Times about this study. There are a lot of arguments about whose life is worth more and why. And there are... <laughs> There are all these arguments why women are more valuable, why men are more valuable, why children should get off first, why the elderly should survive a shipwreck. And so, yeah, we're not going there either. <laughs> well, and and again, like we're not pointing out this study as we're not trying to debunk the fact that, yes, men often step up to the plate and male heroes certainly exist. It's not that, but it's more, again, I find all of these, the fact that we automatically go to debates about who deserves what Mm -hmm. is very interesting, just about human nature in general. Right. Um, One thing that, that I think is interesting to point out is the whole trope of men are the more expendable gender in the media, in movies, in literature. This is from the very entertaining website, tvtropes.org. They point out that in media, female characters have automatic audience sympathy because women are seen as moral, innocent, beautiful, etc. Whereas male characters have to earn audience sympathy by acting appropriately manly and heroic, which often involves... Saving the damsel in distress. Although I take issue with this because I think there are plenty of male characters who aren't all like beefy meathead. Oh yeah. Weightlifting masculine guys who are plenty sympathetic. But the trope does exist. And, you know, and we can also say, hey, well, maybe, um, women need to be saved because we propagate the species. Maybe that's where it comes from or something. Like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, it does. The, the trope of the hero saving the damsel in distress, if anything, it just gets tired. Yeah. Well, and so they do say that, you know, once a man has, or a male character has earned the audience sympathy, he loses it if he can't take care of himself or others. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is some stereotype that we all have that we perpetuate uh, even in the wake of tragedy. But here is the thing that we must also acknowledge as well. And everybody knows this, I hope. Women can be heroes, too. And there are two people 
we would like to call out as well from um, the Aurora incident. These are best friends, Allie Young, who's 19, and Stephanie Davies, um, who essentially like got through the shooting together. Um, after the gunman threw canisters, Allie stood up and was immediately shot, and she punctured a vein in her neck. But when she fell, 21-year-old Stephanie pulled her away and applied pressure to the wound, and even though... Injured Allie said, save yourself, just get out of here. Instead, Stephanie stayed. She called 911 and then helped carry her best friend across two parking lots to an ambulance and help save her life. Yeah, and Allie's going to be fine. Yeah, and I thought it was uh, really amazing that in his um, post-Aurora address, President Obama called these two women out Mm -hmm. for for their bravery. Right. I mean... uh it's interesting. This this whole situation is so tragic, but we end up, like I said, end up having these stories of incredible human behavior where we're willing to really stick it out for each other and do things that we might not do normally or we wouldn't think that we are capable of doing. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that fight or flight instinct. And, you know, it's it's almost our animal nature that comes out of that moment and determines what we will do. Will yeah. we stay or will we go? Well, so, you know, we talk about how women can be heroes, too, but the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission um, has a list. They On June 27th, they awarded medals to 23 people who risked or gave their lives for others. Just three out of those were women. And we're not, we're not trying to say that the men who received the awards were not deserving of them. It's just interesting to point out, and it raises the question of why are more women not on lists like these? Mm -hmm. Are they not taking risks? Are they not putting themselves in harm's way for someone else? Because um, the previous awards from this commission, uh, given in March, recognized 21 individuals, only five of whom were women. Yeah, overwhelmingly, the Carnegie Hero Medal goes to, or the Carnegie Medal, I think it's just the Carnegie Medal, um, go to... Men, you know, and I was looking at the the acts of bravery that the women were awarded for. And it, I mean, it is amazing stuff like women literally pulling elderly people from floodwaters. Mm-hmm. And um, there's actually the episode of Radio Lab. I think the title is good. And they interview some of these Carnegie Medal recipients about why they did what they did. Like one woman um, saved this other woman whose car broke down on a train track while the train was coming. It was not able to stop soon enough. The woman would have died. I mean, it's it's amazing. But yes, uh, overwhelmingly, it is men who are jumping to the rescue. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that might have to do with a little bit of biological differences in risk-taking behavior. Yeah, I I thought this was fascinating. We I feel like we've touched on this before a little bit in various episodes about, you know, men and women reacting to things differently. Uh, men have that whole fight or flight response, whereas women are just going to bond over it. Um, and in a February 28th article from this year, uh, published in Current Directions in Psychological Science, they found that when men are under stress, they become even more willing to take risks, while women are the opposite. They become less willing. And they say that this ties into the whole fight or flight or bonding responses to stress, divided by gender. So the the men tend toward the, the fight or flight response while the women might go tend and befriend. Mm-hmm. So they're the ones kind of waiting in the wings once the, after the tragedy ensues, it helps mend everything back together for an incredibly 
uh, gendered construct explanation yeah. of this. Um, and it also seems uh, the this idea of being faced with death mm-hmm. also seems to provoke risk-taking activity. Um, there was a 2002 study from researchers at the University of Colorado and Bar-Alan University in Israel. Men find risk-taking activities more appealing when primed with thoughts of their own death. And if you think about battlefields and, you know, the Purple Hearts that are given out for acts of bravery out there. I mean, your mortality is right in front of your eyes, and that might provoke um, more rescue. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. They, the researchers said that people may be uh, motivated by potential subjective gains when engaging in risk. In other words, risk-taking behavior may offer men immediate relief from existential anxieties and may serve as a buffer against the terror of death, of course, all the while actually exposing themselves to the possibility of real danger. So, you know, they the researchers were saying people obviously have this ingrained interest in keeping themselves alive and out of harm's way. But there is sort of a gender division as far as, you know, men rushing in when faced with the idea of death or the thought of death or the fear of death. They're going to put themselves in harm's way, whereas women maybe just might not be as likely. But I also wonder if we can step back a little bit from, you know, splitting it down a gendered line to a more individual difference in how that existential anxiety um, is handled. Whereas like some people I know in crisis situations or after personal tragedies that have happened, I have known people who need to do something hands-on. They must be involved. The only way that they feel uh, that they get any kind of relief is is getting involved directly with the situation. And then people who must retreat completely. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if um, if maybe that's that has more to do with it than whether you're a guy or a gal. Right. This has definitely sparked interesting debates and some pretty heated debates as well. Uh, Not only these three men who sacrificed their lives, but the whole shooting in general. Um, And I I think men and women can both be heroes. Absolutely. I don't think it's just limited to men. It could be very personal, like you said, as to whether one person is going to rush in and and save someone as opposed to someone else who doesn't. Yeah, and this is not also an argument of saying, like, we need more female heroes because that's tantamount to saying we need more horrible circumstances so that women can step up to be heroes. Um, that's kind of like the, the catch 22 of heroism is that it is preceded by something awful. Mm-hmm. So it's just a tricky subject in general to talk about, which is why, why don't we leave this conversation now up to our listeners? Mm-hmm. Um, what would you do in these kinds of situations? Do you are are does he, heroism have a gender? I mean, we often tend to link it to men and masculinity, but is that completely misguided? Yeah. So, let us know your thoughts on this very complex issue. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters and we have a couple letters to share today on our episode about Book banning. Now, this first one comes from James, and he is a bibliophile and a literature teacher. 
He writes, to keep this letter short, I'll simply say that I always encourage parents and others to allow literature that is contrary to your own personal beliefs, make you reflect inward and challenge your own views to make sure they're accurate and proper. This is especially needed for teenage students who are trying to figure out who they are, what the world really is, and where their place is in that world. Combine the struggle for meaning with the sexual angst that every person must deal with during that phase of life, and literature can become a powerful tool for self-actualization. Even though I'm a strong conservative, I feel that many books that are banned are useful because more than anything else, it gets students to read. In a world where information is cheap and easy to access, the love of literature is in decline, and many times a controversial book will get someone's nose back in between the pages to see just what all the fuss is about. Trying to find the balance between what is appropriate and what is useful is very hard, but if we take away the opportunity altogether, then what are we denying the students in our nation? So thanks, James. This one's from Annie. She's a high school English teacher down in North Carolina. And she says, During the first semester when I was teaching sophomore English, I decided we would read a couple short stories from Uwam Akpan's Say You're One of Them, a book I had read before it ended up on Oprah's book club, book club list just to keep my cred in check. The first story we read was A Christmas Feast, and it's all about this poor family living in a slum. The mother and father are incredibly unsympathetic, and the oldest sister is a prostitute. The second story we read, My Parents' Bedroom, takes place during the Rwandan genocide and has extremely graphic violence. It wasn't until we had started reading A Christmas Feast that I thought, should we be reading a story about prostitution? Am I going to get in trouble? Every day I felt like I was getting away with something. But no one ever complained. Not administration and no parents. The best part was that it was a huge hit with the kids. Working with 10th graders with the reading skills averaging to the 5th grade level, I wasn't sure they'd really get it. But they got it, and they made all sorts of connections to their own worlds, which, sadly, aren't as dissimilar as we wish they'd be. When we got to the climax of my parents' bedroom, where this incredible act of violence takes place, they were riveted. So maybe it takes a little sex and violence to get kids, particularly kids who don't like to read, to read. And you can bet I'm whipping out Say You're One of Them to read with my seniors next year. Thanks, Annie. And thanks to everyone who has written in to us. Mom stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And you can also leave us a comment and like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And you can always see what we're up to during the week at our website. It's howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?